0: And welcome to Disrupt TV. We're on episode number 144 with our special guest David Bray. Dr. David Bray is uh, our co-host and we've got some very interesting guests. i will do some quick intros of Dr. David Bray as you guys know. He is currently the executive director for the People-Centered Internet, a frequent guest lecturer for Singularity University, more importantly one of the top thought leaders. Uh, we've got a very exciting show today. Uh, we've got three wonderful guests um, and of course uh, we'll start with them. So our first guest today uh, which we're gonna talk more about, um, is, is uh, the CEO of co-founder of technology entrepreneur. If you think about this, uh, and he is one of the top followers, uh, if you see him in terms of what's happening in the intersection between healthcare and security. Uh, before starting uh, his first company, BTS, he was an intelligence officer for the National Security Agency, NSA, did five tours of duty in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, thank you for your service. Uh, and he's also started shifting his focus to uh, very, very important topics around healthcare, uh, technology, IT, and AI, using those to actually transform the healthcare industry. Today, we're going to spend some time talking about those areas, uh, but you also should know he is also a uh, founder of the Betamore and the Digital Harbor Foundation, but also a um, Bronze Star medal receiver and Ian Wise Entrepreneur of the Year listed individual. So welcome to the show, Sean, and thanks for being on the show here.
1: Thanks, Ray. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right.
0: So, all right, David, let's start with the first question to Sean.
2: Sure. And uh, great to be here with uh, both uh, you, Sean, and Ray. And Sean, so with your background, you're looking across the trends that are happening in healthcare and AI and and digital disruption. So could you share with us what are sort of the key issues that any C-suite executive needs to be thinking about when it comes to AI, healthcare, and digital disruption?
1: Well, that's a great question. I think a lot of the executives have heard about AI and certainly are part of the buzz that's surrounding the topic. And a lot of the questions originate with, how do I get started and what can I do today that's operational? What's actually available? What's hype? What's what's not? Um, So for us, what we try to go in and and talk to CIOs and other C-levels about is really how you can get off the ground with AI today and have an operational impact. a lot of the questions you know around AI um, talk a lot about machine learning and other technologies, but there are some really low hanging fruit technologies that can be applied today, and a lot of the the cost that goes into healthcare is really a misuse of the human resources that they have and you have humans today doing things that humans shouldn 't be doing that are really better suited for um, software robots powered by ai
2: so so sort of building on that on can you can you tell us some of like how are you augmenting what humans do or finding ways to shift what humans do so they're doing more value-oriented tasks?
1: So we have this concept that we call shift work. And the idea is that we can shift the work that humans are currently doing today. If you look at healthcare, I mean, there's 100 things that people want to accomplish. They only ever get to 50. So from our perspective, there's a big capacity problem. You know, when you're investing in AI, specifically a digital workforce, and that's really what we're focused in on, you're really investing in the humans more than you are in technology because you want to invest in getting more out of the humans that are working there. Um, and what we try to do is come in and look at capacity problems, look at where humans just don't have the time to complete the things that they know, know they need to. This often falls in hospital operations, things like revenue cycle, finance and accounting, supply chain, areas like that, where there's just so much volume, it's so voluminous that they just, they just don't have the time to undertake these, these efforts. We come in with a digital employee that can sit side by side the human and take on a lot of that capacity. Help, helping them really accomplish the things that they already know they need to do, but also giving them time to find new things that they need to be doing to accelerate their, you know, the provision of care to their patients or just the efficiencies inside their system.
0: You know, it's very, very interesting. When we think about the approach you have, you personify that AI. Um, and that AI as a digital employee or an assistant for, for what people are doing in the healthcare industry for you, where are we in AI and ML today? And how far are we? Like what's hype and what's reality in terms of what, um, what you can do in terms of AI as a service for what you guys Mm -hmm. are talking about?
1: Yeah, that's right. So we've created a digital employee named Olive and Olive is to be thought about just like any other employee, except she, you know, is digital. She's a soft, she's software. Um, But what she can do is really log into any system, just like a human would, and take on tasks that a human would typically do. And There have been some major advances in um, artificial intelligence over the past five years that really have enabled this technology. The heritage of what she does is what you would think about as like screen scraping or um, some of the old macros that you may have seen in your your past. Um, But what happened was computer vision became extremely accessible. This idea that we could create a convolutional neural net very quickly, to be able to understand any image and what what the software robot is looking at and how to navigate that, how to use it just like a human, that became available uh, recently. So what it did, it was that it powered these digital employees to really look at a user interface, look at a screen, understand it, understand how to interact with it, and really become a valuable, valuable employee. And it's not as fragile as some of the other technologies used to be. It used to be when you would program or a software robot, you would do it based on coordinates, you would do it based on these very strict rules around, you know, if, then, then that. But now with both computer vision to be able to, you know, not to be able to respond quickly if a button moves or UI changes, but also the implementation of real machine learning and deep learning. Now that the software robot can react in a whole new universe of possibilities. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about like how ML is used today with some of our digital employees and you know we look at the universe of, of machine intelligence to include both machine learning and deep learning on the machine learning side there, there are just so many models that are available you know based on you know pretty much uh, basic linear regressions but that's actually an incredible capability if put to the right use you know we can look at some historical data we can anticipate things that are that need to be done differently we can give all of the capability to make decisions based on historical data. That's kind of the ML approach from a deep learning side. It gets even more exciting. And again, just like computer vision, deep learning has become incredibly accessible. I mean, if you're sitting in your garage or your basement, you can spin up a neural net that's just amazing to me, you know, versus what it used to be. So what we're able to do because data has been digitized in healthcare and because healthcare is so, Um, aggressive about auditing every single thing a human has done, we have this enormous amount of information about what the humans have been doing for years. The decisions they've been making, the data they had when they made that decision, and which decisions had the best outcomes. We can bottle all that up and put it, feed it into a neural network. We're using mostly deep feed forward, forward neural networks. We put that data in the neural network, and now Olive can make decisions just like a human would, presented with the same amount of data that the humans had. And that just unlocks so many different things. So there are applications for machine intelligence now. It started with this really accessibility of computer vision, machine learning, and now deep learning.
2: Excellent. And and recognizing your background when, when Ray was sharing it, it included national security being in Afghanistan. And... Uh, Thank you for your service, and as one who's worked with national security in Afghanistan as well. It sounds like you're carrying some lessons in terms of making decisions as best you can with the data you have available. So I was wondering if you can maybe tell us a little bit about how you're translating that experience to the healthcare space. And then two, the explainability side. Uh, So many doctors, when you ask why they make a decision, they'll say that's just because what they've seen in their 15 years of experience, it's X. Do you have greater hope that the machine could maybe explain more than a human could? (laughs)
1: So I'll start with the first part of that question. I mean, there are so many parallels to what we were doing at NSA. Um, When I started there, I was just taken aback by the volume of data. I mean, we were collecting hundreds of thousands of rows of data a second. This data was coming in from all these heterogeneous sources. This wasn't the same exact data. There was no data model. There was no standardization. It was coming in from all different directions. You know, it was very, very high variety data. And we were really you know, we were challenged with making sure that we can use that data. So entity extraction became incredibly important, you know, looking at all the different data sources, pulling out the things that matter, the people, places, and things, and then figuring out how they kind of interact with each other as nodes in a network or nodes in a graph. Um, I, I got really into graphs uh, when I was at NSA, I got really into entity uh, resolution, uh, basic regressions and looking at historical data, uh, what, we, what we called math before, what we call machine learning now, um, so yeah, I was in Iraq and Afghanistan for a long time, many years. But I was really just a computer nerd in Iraq and Afghanistan. So we were building these these amazing systems, um, and really we had this ultimate reason to do it, right? We wanted to be able to provide intelligence to the warfighter. We wanted to be able to save lives, and that experience, looking at healthcare, the first thing I saw was a similarity between healthcare and the intelligence community before 9/11. You know, before 9-11, nobody really shared data at a, at a, at a wide scale. Nobody yeah. did this entity extraction. Nobody pulled all this information together. And I looked at healthcare in 2012 and said, this looks like the intelligence community before 9-11. And I don't know, or I don't even want, you know, healthcare to have its 9-11 moment to where everybody understands that it's important to share, but we have to build the systems that can do it now. And really the things that I looked at around you know the problems that I was solving in in national security really just looked a lot like healthcare. People would say to me, "What about HIPAA? What about this, the rules?" And for me, HIPAA is a, a, an incredibly beautiful roadmap of how you can share information. It's how and how and the data and security that you need to do it correctly. We didn't have the luxury of that in in the national with the data we were dealing with at NSA. At the same time, people look at healthcare data and say, "Well, it's you know it's super heterogeneous." And to me, it's like it's not very heterogeneous compared to the stuff we were looking at at NSA, right? Somewhat homogeneous. At least it's around the same topic. Uh, so a lot of this can be can be overcome. But I still had a problem getting the data. You know, it was really about just accessing the systems, the enterprise fortresses that were created inside healthcare to hold the data. How do you get past that that impenetrable, um, you know, shield around that fortress? We figured out that if we trained a software robot. Using a username and password and just going into the interface and, and treating that user interface like an API, then we can essentially have access to all the data we need inside the enterprise. And with that, we can do some really amazing, you know, have some really amazing uses of machine learning and deep learning. So is this
0: like RPA for healthcare or is it more like ML and AI for healthcare?
1: It's a little bit of, of all those things, right? It's really a blend. And, you know, we, RPA, <laughs> Robotic Process Automation, for those who don't, don't know, three years ago, Nobody heard of it. It's been there forever, right? It's, oh, it, it's, it's any kind of automation of the user interface. It's been there forever. But again, it was that computer vision change that has made it explode. So there are companies that are being well-funded, you know, billions of dollars of investment, organizations across the globe from you know, uh, natural um, oil and gas to manufacturing to financial services are, are implementing digital uh, robots and, and software uh, employees. To take on a lot of these tasks. Uh, so we use RPA. We built our own platform to do it just because we wanted to build it with the peculiarities of healthcare in mind, all on a hip and you know, in, in improved environment. And we wanted to be able to interact with some of the protocols of healthcare like HL7 and Fire and uh, oh, yeah. and some of those kind of dictionaries that exist. But it doesn't stop at RPA. RPA is, is, is commodity at this point and it's becoming even more commoditized. So RPA is not the focus. The focus is how do you build a digital employee that can show up for work every day, in our world, do her job better than better than anybody else, and get smarter and better over time. And that's really a blend of lots of technologies: document classification, computer vision, machine learning, regressions, neural nets, access through RPA. It, it, there's so many different things um, that really comprise that digital employee. So that's very.
2: Question about looking towards the future, um, both a source of hope because as you well know, and and for other people in the audience, there's been decades of work trying to do what you mentioned, Health Level 7, HL7, LOINC, SNOMED, that these are all trying to create taxonomies for the world and they're usually out of date by the time they get published. And So maybe you found a better way to use machine learning and robotic process automation to not require all these standards development organizations to move forward. And then two, there was an article just in the last week about how uh, it was. I think it was some Israelis demonstrated they were able to create fake cancerous images on radiology, and so maybe your your approach could actually begin to identify if someone has digitally altered your medical record to make it appear like you're having something you don't. So, yeah. can you talk a little bit about your sources of hope for that. We don't need to standardize everything, and we yeah. also maybe identify anomalies in the data too.
1: Yeah, you, you know, in NSA we did the same thing where we thought that the answer was to create a universal data model and homogenize all the feeds. And every single enterprise has thought about this and tried to do it over and over and over again. And they always fail. And it's super challenging because it makes sense when you think about it. But when you try to implement it, it just never, it never works. I see that as like the, the bug zapper and everybody flies to that bug zapper and gets zapped. Every single time. Any enterprise transformation that you talked about from a technology perspective has involved that. Come on, let's
0: start with the enterprise data warehouse.
1: Yeah, it's gotta work. It's the EDW, it's the unified, it's the UDM, the EDW. It's all that stuff, right? <laughs> What we said was what if instead of approaching it that way we could create a digital employee, have them log into the system so they get access, and then feed those dictionaries into the brain of that digital employee. So the cool thing with all of it is she can speak Loink, she can speak SNOMED CT, she could speak EDI, HL7, FHIR, NCPDP, all these different unique languages where everybody's created their own standard. When you have seven standards you have no standard, right? So, like, the, the, un, the, the great thing about um, what we can do with a digital employee is just feed all those capabilities in. Imagine you had a human sitting there logged into their, their many systems that could instantly access the dictionaries of healthcare, that could instantly access the libraries, uh, the data feeds, the protocols. That's kind of what we're talking about here, which is really, really exciting. As, as we look at, you know, you talked, so my hope there is that we can actually achieve interoperability. We, with the digital workforce, we can do it. Stop talking about it, stop lamenting about it, but actually put it to work. So that's, that's very helpful from my perspective. On the, on the kind of you know, um, malicious side of things, um, there are going to be, it's gonna be a wild west. It really is. I mean, if you think about the things that can be created from a malicious perspective using the power of AI, it should only be combated, combated with AI. Right. There is no way we can expect a human to anecdotally find somebody implanting a, a cancerous tumor or removing one from an image based on their use of computer vision or convolutional neural nets. It has to be you know, applying that same tit for tat with another type of, of, of AI. So I think it's an incredible opportunity for companies that want to start thinking about that to do threat detection, to do malicious bot detection, you know, we have thousands of bots working in an enterprise. Somebody's got to be out there making sure all the bots are cooperative or the ones that you actually put into place and not a malicious bot or not one that has kind of gone off um, because it was hacked and doing things that it shouldn't be doing. We're doing everything we can to protect all of them. And we will continue to do that. But I still think there's an opportunity that exists for companies that want to just, just to focus on that, kind of the RoboCop, if you will. But I do like <laughs> RoboCop, RoboCop, RoboBot, <laughs> RoboBot, right. Well, that, right. Was, that sounds like a but Hey, let's talk about the startup environment.
0: Part of this is getting startup CEOs uh, to, to the show, kind of talking about what it is. Um, Columbus, Ohio, retail capital of the world, home of Jenny's ice cream, home yeah. of like Honda on the other side, manufacturing base hub, not yeah. known for software tech hub, since he at least has a startup scene, uh, tell me what's going on in Columbus. And we see a lot of tech companies there. There's Co. There's other things up north. Uh, yeah. But tell me what's hot there. And what's it like starting up a startup, not in New York, San Francisco, or Austin, Texas? Yeah.
1: Well, there's so much I could say on this topic. I mean, we, you know, I was in Baltimore. And that's where I started my first company. I didn't start my first company to be a startup guy. I didn't start my first company to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to build a business to solve a problem. And that's what we did. So my first company was bootstrapped. There was, I mean, there was no venture capital. Um, we pulled it together with some partners and co-founders of, of, of mine, and we were able to create something you know, pretty valuable. Um, and I was super interested in building, help building the, the tech ecosystem, if you will, in Baltimore. The idea was we could help other entrepreneurs create these companies that, that maybe got acquired for 20, 30, $40 million. That wealth creation would, would be amazing for the city. And I was totally bought into that. And I, and I still think that's an extremely powerful thing. But then I met this guy, um, I was, I was, so I had sold my company, I was looking at healthcare. I saw that there was no internet of healthcare and I decided that one, there was something I wanted to try to do was build interoperability. Um, and I met this guy from Sequoia Capital, which is one of the, you know, number one VCs in the country that invested in many of the great companies that you hear about from Apple to Cisco to yep. Facebook and beyond. And when I met, when I met this guy, his name is Mark know, He was the first investor in LinkedIn that was kind of his, one of his claims to fame. He's had many successes. He told, you know, we met. And he said, what are you up to? And I was like, well, I got all this stuff going on in Baltimore and I'm trying to build an ecosystem. And I built Betamore as the kind of tech hub. And, you know, we're, we, we created a nonprofit to teach kids how to code. And I, I really just want to create some companies and sell them and, and, and keep doing that. And he said, but I said, I think I have this idea to build the internet of healthcare. He said, stop everything you're doing. Stop doing that other stuff. Build something massive. So nothing changes the city more than a billion dollar company. Nothing changes the city more than an industry more than building a multi-billion dollar type type organization that can really impact that. And when you look at all the other industries, like what disrupted retail, Amazon, transportation, Uber, hotels, Airbnb, when you ask the question of healthcare, there's no answer. So somebody has to come in and fill that void. So what he told me was, Sean, build something big and do it in Columbus, Ohio. And I was like, whoa, 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 why Columbus, Ohio? (laughs) That was kind of out of left field. He said, look, I'm moving to Columbus and I'm going to start a fund because I believe that we can create massive companies in Columbus, Ohio. If you look at all the data, GDP, the the drive or the one-hour flights to the customers, this is the place to do it. The talent is here. The customers are here. Silicon Valley is an idea. It's not a location anymore. It used to be. And we can implant that same thing in Columbus. And I said, you know what? I'm in. Let's do this. So he moved to Columbus, built his funds with his partner, Chris Olson, who's still on my board today, very close mentor and friend. Oh, yeah. And we, I moved to Columbus, and we were the first investment. And it's been fantastic. I, The challenge is capital. The challenge okay. is capital. We were very fortunate. Our Series A was kind of pre-wired with our with – um, He's, he's our, Drive Capital, right? That's right, Drive he's, Capital. Drive Capital, drive capital did, yeah. yeah. Mark,
0: Mark went over to phone Drive Capital in Columbus, and that's kind of where we are. And you're the first investment fund for that. We're here with Sean Lane, CEO and co-founder at Olive AI. You can follow him at Unleashed CBUS uh, for Columbus, uh, one of the pioneers in Columbus, and also Balmer filling out tech startups there. I went to Hopkins, that's why I put that in there. I love uh, Balmer. Congratulations, and thanks for being on the show. Happy Friday. Thanks, thanks. Thanks for joining us, Sean. Absolutely. Very, very cool. Wow. All right, who would have thought of this? Come on, David, you and I talk about healthcare, AI, security, you know, people-centered people, people centered internet all the time, right? This is an intersection of something live that's happening here, so pretty wild.
2: It's, it's, it's a natural thing, and it makes sense that what's happening here with the human side is both needed, and as he said, there's no major market leaders at the moment, so hopefully he'll take the, spin, the, the flag and move it forward.
0: Yeah, this is gonna be pretty cool. Our next guest is the awesome Suki Fuller. We're gonna talk about her. She's an analytical storyteller investor, competitive intelligence, strategic intelligence individual. I never really know exactly what she's doing, but she is recognized by Forbes as a strategic advisor for her work doing a whole bunch of things, not just fundraising startups, uh, being a speaker, a mentor. She is the co-founder and CEO of Salam Ventures, founder of Miri Brewery, I believe, a strategic strategic and competitive intelligence company focused on the integration of intelligence with lean and agile principles of tech startups. And she's currently co-leading the 50-50 pledge uh, initiative to increase the number of women in venture capital, whoo And Suki Fell- Fuller is more importantly, she's a coach. She's an entrepreneurial coach that people turn to. She's a dual citizen of the UK and the US. Uh, she's had a lot of experience, not just in natural, national security, law enforcement, startups, uh, private corporations, uh, but she also spent 12 years in the US Army Reserves big time keynote speaker. You see her everywhere on ethics and technology, deep tech, AI, neural startups. And of course, she's a big, big champion of creating the startup region in London, where she's calling from. So thanks a lot for being on the show, Suki. Thanks for being here. You can follow her at
3: S-U-K-I-F-U-L-L-E-R. So let's start up. What's going on? How are you doing? I'm all right. You didn't have to read all that, Ray. <laughs> you could have just said, "She's my friend. We like to drink and eat South Korean barbecue chicken together." The Woo! end.
1: We
0: had, <laughs> that's it. it. Would have been faster. I know. I'm trying to carry the
3: ball. <laughs> you know.
0: But yeah.
3: But yeah. I'm good. It's it's good. It's seven o'clock here in London, and
0: you toast. Anything to drink?
3: Woo-hoo. All right. My <laughs> glass of wine. It's Friday. Come on. It's, it's seven p.m. You know, you got to do what you got to do. You know, I, I got to. Here's one for you, Ray. Here's one for you, David. You know, it's one for the absent ballot, You know, <laughs>
2: excellent for friends'
3: absence. <laughs> <laughs> and one for our excellent producer, Aubrey. <laughs>
2: Aubrey's in on that um, one. <laughs> so it's tricky. It sounds like you do lots of different things in your role and you look at what's what's happening strategically in terms of trends, in terms of competitiveness, and and could you share with us, what are you seeing since you're in the UK right now and you're looking at what's happening in Europe when it comes to data, when you're looking at the US, whether or not we have a data strategy is less than clear. What trends when it comes to data and strategy are you seeing from both continents?
3: You know, what's really interesting is that um, what Sean was just speaking about when it comes to health and data and AI because here in the UK we have the NHS and the NHS is going through that period now of digitization and ironically we have a new health minister who formerly was a tech entrepreneur before he went into government with his family that what they did back in the day I can't remember what Matt Hancock did but anyways. So we're seeing that sort of progress going on right now within the healthcare sector here in the UK. And I think it's still kind of behind what, I mean, if Sean wants to move from Columbus, as much as I love Columbus, I do love Columbus. (laughs) I I like Cleveland more, because I know more about the drinking in Cleveland and Cincy than Columbus. But if he wants to come to London and maybe talk to some people here, that would be great because I'd say there was a lot going on, but definitely a lot could be learned from what Sean was speaking about. But when it comes to trends, fintech. Fintech rules the world, apparently. That's usually how it is. Even before it was tech, it was always money rules the world. So it's just now you put the fin in front of it. Um, that's the, probably the biggest the biggest trend we're seeing. And everybody's talking about how London is gonna be still the financial capital of Europe. I don't think that's really going to change. I, even with our whole B problem. (laughs) 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 Bad words, bad (laughs) words. I don't, I I think that it will be slightly diminished, but I think people are still going to come here because it comes down to language. Yeah, we we, country where the primary language is English. People are going to come here first. They may not stay here but they're gonna come here first. Cause that's like the footpath to like pick up as much as you can and then go to Europe. I don't think it'll be Europe first and then us.
0: Yeah, we're definitely seeing seeing a huge rise on the FinTech side, that's definitely a big area. Uh, And and the center of FinTech and crypto is is somewhere between London and the Zoog, right? And uh, that's where we we see that. Tell me more about this 50-50 pledge and what's going on with Backstage Capital's arrival. Uh, we see a lot of these accelerators now popping back into London as well, despite all, all the other things that are external forces. Uh, I definitely agree with you. London will be fine. Uh, po- uh, U- the UK will be fine post any of this. Uh, no, happens. no,
3: no, 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 I didn't say it'd be fine. <laughs> <laughs> it, it'll be different. <laughs> Interesting. I, 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 I am mean, you know what? I'm being optimistic given what happened recently with our new delay. I'm being extremely optimistic, but I'm not going to be complacent. Because that's how they wear you down when you when you really know that something is wrong strategically just looking at it financially it's not a good it's not good for the UK I mean if we leave Europe and then we decide to come back then we have to join the euro and when you have a currency that is strong as the sterling is and you leave and you come back to the euro which is not the best we've just stabbed ourselves so I'm being optimistic. That's an optimism today, just based on the delay. <laughs> Catch me like three days ago, and I'd been like, it's gonna be bad. <laughs> but um, I'm just I'm really just being quite optimistic today. So and maybe it's also the wine, and I have had Prosecco also. So
2: it's <laughs> <laughs> Friday. You're allowed to be optimistic. It's, you should it's, be it's optimistic. A
3: Friday. It's a Friday. Well, let's
2: talk about Friday. the 50-50 pledge. Let's talk about the Friday. 50-50 pledge.
3: So Where are the 50/50 on that? pledge is an initiative that um, I started with Chris Topman from Notion VC. And it's basically came down to the fact that there's a 50 year old white male VC and me, and we decided, well, we see a lot of VC funds speaking and talking the talk about, oh yeah, we wanna raise our diversity, we wanna raise our equality. Oh yeah, you know, our pipeline, it's a pipeline problem no 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 no. it's a power problem and it basically comes down to the fact that people don't like giving up power and so we just chris said this is not working for him and his fund because even though he's a male investor he'd been investing in female founders above a higher rate than most of the other funds and amongst his partners He was actually getting better returns on the ones that he'd said, Hey, let's invest in these companies. So he was seeing the numbers. And of course, once, as I said, it comes down to finance, people start paying attention. And we said, look, if you look at the numbers, we all know when you invest in female founders, you're going to get better returns. One women, we are a little bit more, I wouldn't say risk averse. We are a lot more careful with our funds. One, because we've had to manage them since we hit puberty and had to buy menstrual care products, you know, (laughs) whereas guys, you don't have to think about that. (laughs) What are men thinking about? They're thinking about an extra five, five dollars for beer. Women like five, five dollars or five pounds to buy tampons, you know. So we just said, look, here's the deal. If you have female partners, if you have female LPs, GPs, people that are on your upside that's great but you want people on the investing side making decisions and they need to be women because we basically are able to give you more insight into areas that you as a man would not understand and also we are able to see things from a different perspective so we know everybody has a different perspective and while we you know we can talk about gender you know non-binary but everybody has a different perspective if everybody on a team looks the same you're going to get groupthink and that's a basically what happens within the whole VC culture. You have a lot of groupthink, which is why, how many scooter companies do we have? (laughs) It's ridiculous. I don't don't need to see that many scooter companies out there. It's ridiculous. Meanwhile, you have companies that are really making some great products that are not being recognized or given funds. So we started this initiative. We've been going around speaking to a lot of people that are already on the team. So they understand they are very much aware of what they need to do with their funds. They are now becoming more advocates and they're taking action. And that's really where we are. We want people to take action because once you're aware, you can't say you didn't know. And pretty much the numbers already show majority of the companies out there, the majority of the funds out there, they know, they can't say they didn't know, they know. And now it's just a matter of either blindly ignoring or just saying, oh, well, we can't find, we can't find people. You can find people. There are plenty of women that work in finance that have the background. There are plenty of women that have run tech companies that unfortunately have not exited at the higher rate, so that they would be considered viable candidates, but there's still plenty of women out there. And I'm not from that background where, you know, founding a company, et cetera, you know, exiting, but I have a background, which is really funny, very similar to Sean, which is in that whole sort of intelligence background. So I have what's known as a very wide and diverse knowledge base that that's, it's there, it exists. So I always call people on that BS and so does Chris. Chris is it's really strange to have me and him working together. It's not strange, but for other people, they look at us and they go, oh, what, what's going on here? And it's like logic. Exactly. Different, different backgrounds. And when we sit down and we talk about things, he's making me aware of things that I may be aware of, but I also may not have any idea as to the whole thought process that's gone into it. Because I see it from my perspective as a black woman looking in and what, what the white guys are doing. And so I have my bend on it. And he just pretty much distills that down, deciphers it and says, well, that's not exactly how it went down. Like, that's what we see. And then he's basically telling me, well, we don't even see it from your perspective because we're not living in your world as a woman, you know, as women, we're living in the man's world and women are having to see things from two perspectives all their lives. Men, so generalization but men you pretty much only have to see it from a men's perspective your whole life you don't have to fit into a woman's world but you know
2: well th- well said I, I wish i could oh in fact i will foot everything you said uh, suki because there's research that anita woolsey at yale has done tom malone has also worked with her that shows you get better group outcomes when there are three factors present the first one being when there's equal turn taking The second is active listening, which gets to your point about the shared perspective and beginning perspectives other than your own. The third is actually a higher ratio of women to men. And so there's empirical showing of better group outcomes. Now, you mentioned that your background, similarly uh, to to Sean's, includes national security. You pulled a little bit on that thread that you're used to sort of applying logic to problems, but could you tell a little bit more, how did your national security background prime you for the FinTech and the competitive analysis space?
3: Mm, I would say, well, there's a deeper story. <laughs> so um, there's uh, sort of this little mini backgrounding in chemical engineering. I, I wasn't very good at that. So it was electroplating and I was, I was okay, but I wasn't the best. Um, and I didn't really like being in a room with no windows, hence not working in national security. I'm sure Sean can attest to that. You know, skiffs, windows with no windows, rooms with no windows not good but (laughs) my degree in intelligence studies which i got from mercyhurst university plug for my university in erie pennsylvania Um, intelligence studies they basically teach you how to be an analyst from the very first day so you are learning theory and practical application so as an undergraduate student you're also working on programs you're working on projects you're a contractor working for National Security, you're working for law enforcement, you're working for any sort of government agency as well as private corporations. So you are very much attuned to how you go about collecting, organizing, analyzing that information and being able to report it. So when you walk out the door, you can get a job pretty much anywhere without having to be trained for, you know, three to nine months. You're walking out the door and you are a grade A analyst. So moving into sort of the tech sector, it already means that I have a basic knowledge of how to do research, so that's due diligence, that I understand how to organize information. And I'm really very able quite quickly to understand a scenario or an issue or a problem and (laughs) rip apart people's decks pretty effectively in a very short period of time. And also at the same time, explain that to somebody in an executive position or explain that to a GP or an LP or whomever. So it's it's really helped me be able to sort of craft a story for a lot of companies and a lot of startups is help them understand how to tell the, tell the story of data.
2: Got it. That's oh, that's I can know. imagine. I can see the telling the story of the data is a powerful skill because you're absolutely right too often times people just focus on the quants and they miss the larger forest for the trees or vice versa they they tell the story but the data is not there too so to be able to switch between roles is a compelling skill to have
3: yeah i always tell people that you know i marry the quant with the qual and there are a lot of people that either focus just on one side and that's i see that's the biggest issue right now within sort of intelligence or even within tech that so many people are focused on the coding element and the data science and like you're missing the ethnographic and sociological aspects because it's very relevant and as we move into using more AI and developing AI that there's sort of that we need to have the ethics of AI and that's very much missing. That's the scary part, that's the part that scares me is that people don't really think about at the very core and very beginning of anything. There's a humor, there has to be. And that's the person that you really want to be. And it's like, that's really great. There are lots of different types of being in tech. I wanna be the person that knows what to do when you mix two minerals together versus knowing the computer that's gonna do it. No, 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 no. (laughs) I wanna know what's gonna happen. I wanna be the person that knows how that happens versus the person who's programming a computer to know that. It's okay, but, you know, actual hands-on, like tangible, you know, skills are really important, and I think people forget that a lot.
0: So, are you still working in Croydon? Are you still uh, part of the startup teams over there? And uh, what's so, going on with the startups in, in London and in the UK?
3: So, the Croydon Tech City um, organization, which was run by Nigel, Johnny, and Sarah, they've sort of shut down because they had full-time jobs. <laughs>
0: Oh, no, and uh, finton has gone no, too.
3: No, but what's really great is that they really set about sort of the baseline for the Croydon Digital, which is Croydon, it's a really beautiful thing. Croydon Government has now sort of, they have this whole entity. Uh, Croydon.digital is the website, by the way. Yep. <laughs> and they have basically set about, they have a CDO who was formerly, um, what's his name? Hold on. If I write it, Neil, I have to write it down, I'll remember. Neil Williams um, is the CDO for Croydon, and he was formerly the head of gov.uk. So he's now in charge of the whole digital aspects of Croydon. And what's really terrific is that they actually use input from local citizens. They are engaging with the tech community in croydon so they're building it from the ground up they're using citizen assessments they're using service assessments they're using all that information from people within the local area of croydon and i think it will be better integrated than the city of london because the city of london was already so mega and existing and croydon is starting it's It's existing but as it's growing it's building that in and that for me is the most important part to put that in at the base level and that's what they're doing it's a beautiful thing i think i don't care what anybody says in london croydon is going to be like it's it's growing at a rate and it's maybe it's not growing as fast as other people but it's growing and it's a good scene
0: give us three three cool startups in croydon that we should know about
3: uh street pins oh my gosh is it street pins
0: Yep. Okay. Street pins.
3: <laughs> I can't think of any right now. You put me on the spot.
0: No, no, no. Don't even worry about it. But uh, people, people, people mostly know about shortage in London. That's typically it is street pin. Street Pins, is the digital community in Croydon. Uh, we see that as well, and there's a bunch of other ones like that. Uh, but but that's. Uh, I think people don't realize that there are other startup hubs uh, within London and within the UK. So, Ooh, so this is always kind of fun so to
3: look many. at. There's so many. I mean, London is not the only place. Uh, Manchester, you know, if you look at um, the Tech North Advocates, so you have Tech London Advocates and we have the Global Tech Advocates, all start by um, Russ Shaw. And we have Tech North Advocates, which is um, sort of northern England. So it's Manchester area, um, you have Birmingham in the Midlands. There are all these tech hubs that are doing great things. Cambridge area is doing more around med tech. Birmingham is doing a lot around ed tech. Um, oh my gosh, there's so much going on and, and everybody focuses, hyper focuses on London. And yeah, I live in London, so yeah, I know a lot about it, but I also see the great work that people are doing, you know, in the Nordics, uh, people are doing in, um, in France, so, you know, to have like the whole VivaTech, you have um, the F station, you know you have all these great co-working spaces that are popping up then you have all these accelerators starting uh, backstage recently opened and came to london and what's really wonderful about that is you don't have you don't have anybody focused on sort of the whole diversity that's that's one of those buzzwords that people kind of zoom out of but it's you didn't have anybody that was running ex- an accelerator or a fund that was focused solely on, you know, people of color or women of color or those that are LGBTQ and it's oh. it's nice to have that whole s- sort of
0: Well, just we well, just got some uh, tweets back Uh you forgot Oakum, Spice Mint, uh, Global Resourcing, and Hoza. I have no idea who those are, but I will check them out.
3: No, I'm so sorry, people. No, no, no. These are <laughs> in.
0: It's good. Um, but, anyways, here we're here it's with Super Miller, Analytical Storyteller, Investor, Competitive, and Strategic Intelligence. Uh, one of my good friends that I do grab uh, Korean at Jinzu uh, in London. Uh, catch her at on Twitter at Suki Fuller, S-U-K-I-F-U-L-L-E-R. Thanks for spending your evening with us. Uh, I know it's pub time, so appreciate it.
3: All right, thanks a lot for having me. Bye, everybody.
2: Thanks very much. Great to meet you, Suki. So Ray, this hey. is, did, you, did, you, did you know this is being the 134th episode? It's really 12 to the second power, and we've not asked anyone like 12-year projections for the future, so maybe if our next guest we can ask for his 12 year projection of what the world looks like. Is it better or worse? Particularly when it comes around data and privacy and some other
0: questions. We should, it's 12 to the second power, exactly. (laughs) We are here with Steve Wilson, (laughs) our own Vice President Principal Alice at Constellation Research. He's our digital identity and privacy person. Uh, He's the one looking at all the cool research around digital safety, uh, what it means from data decisions, what it means for privacy, what it means for identity, uh, things like uh, privacy engineering, privacy impact assessment, you can talk to Steve about. Uh, He's been leading this research for over 25 years. He's got double degrees in physics and electrical engineering, uh, and more importantly, he's done a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, with us talking about where the future of blockchain going and the future of identity and agency. So we're here to talk a little bit more about all this stuff. Welcome to the show. You can follow him at Steve underscore lockstep
4: on Twitter. So welcome. Thanks, Ray. Thanks, David. How are we? Hey,
2: very great. Great to have you, Steve. What time is
4: it where you are? Oh, don't worry about that. It's um, It's going to be sunrise soon. It's a pretty day coming up. Excellent. We are global, Columbus, London,
2: and now Sydney. Yeah. Well, on top of it, Ray, we've had two guests that talked about national security background. So, Steve, tell us about your undisclosed national security background that you have.
4: (laughs) I'm I'm not even sure what my own undisclosed background is, David. Well, it's great to see you, Steve.
2: (laughs) So, first question that we would like to ask you is your projection 12 years into the future have we gotten better with privacy? Have we gotten worse with privacy? Is privacy something we're even talking about, or are we just giving up on it? What's your thoughts about what does the future look like in terms of trends with privacy?
4: Oh, look, for sure, I am an optimist. I'm, I'm progressive on privacy, I think. Uh, it, it will get better because it has to get better. And, and we've got precedents for this sort of thing before. You know, the, um, the model that we're in, another industrial revolution is really instructive when you look at what um, the problems were and the roadblocks and the snags of the earlier industrial revolutions. And, and, you know, within some people's living memory, um, the beautiful beaches of California were covered with oil derricks that were powering the last industrial revolution. Um, and when you've got that sort of disruption, when you've got a whole new um, mining industry, for example, that's fueling the economy, the problems that came with that, we had unrestrained capitalism for a while that, that, that was raping and pillaging the, the, the planet And we're still seeing a long tail from that, but of course it it created a huge amount of regulatory innovation. And that sounds like a bit of an oxymoron, but I I think when you're dealing with new assets, um, we were dealing with mineral rights and we were dealing with what do you do with this weird petrochemical stuff, um, creating intangible assets and creating enormous amounts of wealth. The the world's biggest companies, most powerful companies weren't always behaving brilliantly. And um, now history is repeating itself so we didn't make oil go away we tamed it we put oil into supply chains and i see the same thing happening with data so uh, you know the, the metaphor that data is the new crude oil that's a contested metaphor and like all metaphors you don't want to stretch it to breaking point but the point that we do make about data is that it fuels the new economy it is a it's a raw resource it is being innovated it is being transformed it is forming itself into supply chains it's indispensable And it's creating enormous wealth at people's expense so what do you do about that you 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 actually moderate you you produce restraint you have some social push that says hey people we've had enough of this exploitation Um, you get power at the ballot box you get regulatory reform you get the ralph naders of the world come along and they and they act as champions on behalf of the public and i'm really i'm really optimistic that um GDPR and the California Consumer Privacy Act, these things are thought of as fairly narrow, fairly um, restrictive um, um, pushback, if you like. They're they're counter-revolutionary movements. And I, I think that we've got to see them more broadly as being the light on the hill for the sorts of regulations and the sorts of moderation, the sort of rule of law that's going to come in the data economy. Now, I don't know what the data economy is exactly going to look like in 12 years' time, but I do know that it's going to be fairer It has to be fairer. Data is too important for us to just keep spewing it out. Um, The the waste of data right now is ridiculous. Um, The exploitation is crazy. So I think that we're gonna see moderation. I think that we're gonna see um, supply chain regulation for data. And I think that yes, we will still keep talking about privacy. Um, We will start to understand privacy in the social milieu uh, transforming to digital a lot more clearly At the moment, that analogue to digital conversion, I think, is really messy. And our intuitions aren't quite right. Um, We've lost our bearings online. And I think maybe the next generation is going to get them back. And then when you've got digital intuition and you've got true digital literacy married to a a better societal compact for, you know, what are we going to do with data? How valuable is it? How do we share the riches? Then I think that you're going to see some, you know, regulatory innovation. And uh, I'm, I'm really optimistic about that.
0: You know, you're so optimistic, Steve. And i say, it sure how, you, how you can be this optimistic. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's awesome. It's awesome that you are, that you see a bigger, brighter data future. And uh, along with that, though, let's think about what type of ethics are we going to need for AI and decision support system uh, to get us there, right? Or, or is, is
4: ethics even possible? Oh, yeah, sure it's possible. Um, but we do tend to over-egg ethics. Um, ethics, to begin with, isn't all that complicated. You know, have some empathy. Um, have some social bearings, um, put yourself in the position, you know, you're a tech person, you're building something incredible, put yourself in the position of the person that are using it or the people that are not using it or being affected by it. You know, ethics 101 is really pretty simple. Um, I make a couple of observations about ethics. We, we overdo it when, in fact, um, the thing that's missing, I think, in tech is restraint. And this is a difficult thing. You, know, you say, well, why am I progressive and optimistic? Partly it's because I don't live in Silicon Valley. Um, that when you when you get that pure distilled capitalism and that and that white hot burning urge to make money out of stuff, then um, it it can distort people's feelings. So a lot of ethics is actually about trying to remove those filters or readjust the filters and be be less um, distorted about things. So I make I do make a couple of technical points about ethics. I think it is unethical for technologists to not understand the basics of privacy and law. A lot of technologists out there rely on their own intuitions about privacy and data ownership, and that is unethical. The world is complicated. There are regulations, there are rules around privacy. In most places around the world, and now in California, privacy is as simple as this. If I've got personal information about you, Ray, it doesn't matter where I got it from, Doesn't matter whether I made it up through AI or whether I went door to door and asked you and your family for some questions. If I've got data about you, I should be restrained in what I do with it. I shouldn't take data for one purpose and reuse it for another purpose and make money out of it. Um, When I'm finished with data, I should destroy it. It's so simple. Now, it's got nothing to do with ownership. It's got nothing to do with some of these new sort of imagined legal constructs. It's got nothing to do with blockchain. It's got nothing to do with self-sovereign identity or owning identity. That stuff is super important, but it's not ethical to just jump on a bandwagon and say we're going to use blockchain self-sovereign technology and, and a new data ownership jurisprudence to solve privacy. That is unethical because it, it willfully ignores what we've already got. Um, we don't have data ownership, we don't need it. Um, what we do have around the world is over 125 jurisdictions have got this um, uh, what's called data protection legislation. It's all about restraint. It's really pretty simple. You don't need technology to come along and get people to restrain the way that they abuse data. Um, so I think that the ethical thing is let's not overcook it. Let's not look for tech solutions to what's basically a, like a, like, you know, it's a human problem. Um, don't rip people off. And, you know, if you haven't figured that out by the time you're in grade school, and then you blast all the way through and start up your own tech company when you're 15... Um, it, it's just not ethical to ignore. So, you know, form a diverse team. Um, go and get some lawyers. Lawyers are good people, by and large. Um, uh, ask them, what are the rules? Um, maybe remind yourself how society works. And, um, and be open-minded. And I think that that's the foundation for ethics.
2: I, I love what you said, Steve, that it's, at the end of the day, it's a human problem. And, and you also opened up, though, that that what really is happening here is, is power can be distributed either through legal means or through technology means. And up until now, the technologies we have really haven't challenged the existing legal means that we've been distributing power. Now, you could imagine situations where law and or tech creates a more symmetric distribution of power and helps protect us, but you could also imagine scenarios where either law or tech creates a more asymmetric balance. I mean, some of oh, these yeah. calls for regulation by some companies have you skeptical. Are they just making it difficult for any other startup to do what they did? So I guess, and then and may even be that you can distribute power through narratives, through ethics, or through other means that oblige that yeah. people. So could you talk a little bit more about your vision for a more symmetrical world, whether it's through legal means or through technology means or other oh, means?
4: Absolutely. When it comes to the future. And David, I think that you've done this the whole time that i've known you for five years and, and we just heard it from suki five minutes ago yep. um, power is an important thing and and we need to start talking about power we need to start talking about minorities and we need to start talking about the white guys in silicon valley who've got the power um, by and large the white guys in silicon valley have got so much unstated soft power that that's why they don't care about privacy they've never actually had a personal private um, disruption you know right. they've never had maybe a sexually transmitted disease in college or if they did they certainly had the ability through their through their family and their power to to have that hidden so you know it's it tends to be women of color and minorities who've actually got a got a a gut feeling about privacy because of that power imbalance so um i i i do talk about balance Um, i'm certainly not ignoring technology Um, there are some fantastic things happening in self-sovereign identity um, there's some fantastic things happening about the provenance of data. So where did data come from? Um, where's it going? What are people's expectations about what data is for? And how do you how do you construct metadata languages that allow people to attach their their preferences? There's some really wonderful low level work being done in standards. You know, I'd call that the Kantara Alliance that's working on the Kantara Initiative that's working on consent receipts and the ability to attach consent instructions and, and ethical instructions to data as it flows, especially through the health system. So- yes.
0: Steve, Steve, you're, you, you just came back from, from the no identity conference and, uh, and definitely some hot trends that were happening there. Um, and one of the big questions that you, you always ask about, and, and I think is always very important is how do people get more agency and regain control of their data, right? That's, that's a topic that you've been advocating. David, I know you've been talking about that as well. Uh, I mean, these are, these are big topics, right? But what's important there, Steve?
4: Um, agency is absolutely the, 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 the top word at the moment. Agency and provenance are the, are the two things. Um, it's easy and it's a bit glib to talk about control of data, but control, um, I think, is not the right metaphor, not really the right objective, primarily because there's so much data about me that's created behind my back by big data processes, IoT, we're instrumenting the world. Probably 95% of information about me I've never seen, I never will see. It's untouched by human hands. How the hell do i control that <laughs> right um, you, can't, no control. you can't put this on the on the humble user to control and we need a, a level of of moderation you know there's lots of things about my vehicle that i don't control there's absolutely nothing about an airplane that i control and i don't have to because there's there's you know obviously um agency is important because it's a much more human kind of model much more human kind of metaphor for what is it about about uh data that I do have a right to to assert an interest in. And now, we, it, I think by and large, we're pretty comfortable having agency um, implemented on our behalf. So I've, I do have agency um, when I drive a car, but lots of that agency is implemented um, on behalf of me by um, good auto companies, by roads and traffic rules, by enforceable standards, etc. So if we start thinking about agency when it when it comes to data, then I think we're looking for a, you know, a mesh of technologies and regulations and social mores that are still evolving. Um, identity is really hot at the moment. Um, I would like to see identity reframed. I think that we talk too much about identity when a more general issue is what is it about people that we need to know? Uh, What is it about people that we don't need to know? And then you get privacy, then you get anonymity. Um, I don't need to know, you know, much about David right now to to have this transaction. And um, then you get some really interesting engineering frameworks because you know a lot of look, the rubber hits the road with day-to-day engineering. Um, people are programming computers to to pick up data, to move it around, to do things with it. Um, think about what you need to know about people, and and let that be your guide. Um, no data. <laughs> it just reminds me of a funny thing that, that, you know, we talk about data being a fluid, there's lots of metaphors about data. Data wants to be free, data information wants to, wants to, wants to move, information flows and, and it sort of does at a, at a metaphorical level, but no piece of data anywhere on the internet flows by accident. Every single piece of data is a person writing a, a line of software that picks up a piece of data from one memory location, and moves it to another there is no accidental flow of data it's not that sort of thing it's not like air or water um, data moves from one transistor or one gate or one memory unit to another and it, and it always happens because somebody made a decision to move an atom of data and you know we um, let's talk about agency what about the agency of the programmers that are writing this stuff um, <laughs> what about the decisions that they're making all the time um, albeit under duress from the boss or albeit because They've got a, a million dollar bonus from their from soon to be unicorn company that they're starting up. So look, there's certainly pressure on people to behave in certain ways. But at the end of the day, none of this stuff is accidental. Um, data, data always moves from, a, from a, a willful specific act of an engineer to, um, to make that happen.
2: So on a quick optimistic note, uh, Ray and I are involved with the People Center Internet. I know we've shared a little bit about it with you, Steve. If you had to look to the future, would there be this human right or a new human right or something, some, even if it's not even a right per se, would there be some ethos that you'd want the world to embrace to make the world a better, more symmetric distribution when it comes to data and power and
4: agents? Um, look, I'm, um, <laughs> I'm a little old fashioned in some respects and I want to defend that because um, caution is an important thing in security and it's an important thing in policy making um you know rome wasn't built in a day um rome can certainly be torn down in a day if we are rash about these things so um, as a prelude i'm therefore a little bit cautious and um and i even want to use the word conservative and i do not mean that in a political sense but i mean it in a in a in a policy making sense let's conserve the good things that we've got Um, There is plenty of human rights already. I just don't think that they've been translated very well into the digital world. Um, I am a bush lawyer, as we say in Australia. I've never studied law, but I've been working with lawyers for 30 years. And I know enough about the law to know that it is the most complicated mechanism of anything that you and I are dealing with. Tech is fairly simple. Policy is complicated. Law is really difficult, and it should be difficult. And therefore, don't mess with it. and, and I'm persuaded by the people I speak to that coming up with new jurisprudence around the ownership of data would be a mistake. Uh, and I don't think it's necessary. So that's what I mean about being conservative and cautious. Um, let's have things that are, let's concentrate on the on the changes that are necessary and, and um, hopefully sufficient. So um, look, I... I um, and I love
2: that you said Sorry, I love that you said empathy. So, so talk a little bit more about empathy or or, or restraint when it comes. Do we motivate that through peer pressure or through other means? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Got, we only got about twenty seconds left, so just
4: you know. Oh. <laughs> we need more diversity in our schools. Um, I think, from high school through college, I think that the way that technologists are trained needs to be a lot broader, and um, and people should be exposed to these things. But you know, the law has got such a bad name. We all make our lawyer jokes. Lawyers are. Lawyers are people. Lawyers have got some really interesting things to do. Go out and do a a law unit in your your undergraduate. That's that's a pretty good start. And then start asking questions. We're here with Steve Wilson. Empathy, ask questions.
0: Vice President, Principal Alice at Constellation Research. You can follow him at Steve underscore Lockstep. Definitely a lot more. Check out the blog. Check out what he's doing on Twitter. And uh, we'll talk more about this in a bit. Thanks for spending your morning with us on Saturday. uh, A pleasure,
4: uh, Ray. Thanks, David. All the best, my friends.
0: Woo-hoo. All right. Thank you. That's episode 144. Thanks for being on the show, Steve. David, we've got some excellent stuff next week. We've got Brian Solis. He's writing his new book, Life Scale. He's a principal analyst at Altimeter and author of X uh, and some other books. Uh, we've got Lorna Bornstein, founder and CEO of Rocker, and then Jennifer Elias, report at the Silicon Valley Business Journal. They'll all be here uh, when we do the show. Uh, on episode 145. David, any last words, any interesting observations? And thank you so much for guest hosting uh, the show with me.
2: Uh, Well, always great to be with you, Ray. I really did like the themes that that cut across the different folks we had regarding both their national security background, how they view the world as meeting both empathy, diversity, and really thinking about it both quantitative and qualitatively about where we're going. It's been great to be with you on episode 12 to the second power. And I uh, hope to go, guest host with you in the future as well. Thank you.
0: Uh, we'd love to have you. Hey, what are you doing in the next few weeks? Were you speaking? Were you talking? Uh, any other things people should know about since we've got you here? Sure.
2: Yep. And in two weeks, I will be at the Singular University Canada, Canada Summit, uh, giving a talk on the future of resiliency and governance uh, right, and, and actually having a
0: panel. Toronto. Very uh, sorry, Toronto yeah. or uh, Ottawa? Sorry.
2: Edmonton, actually. None of the above. Um, So, (laughs) yeah, I'll be in Edmonton, and it'll include both the future of governance, the future of distribution of power when it comes to the Internet of Things and AI, and then uh, later I'll be again in Canada, sorry, in California, having a conversation as well about what type of world do we want to live in, and how can we as positive change agents help make it happen.
0: Really, really cool. Hey, thank you so much for being on the show, David. Really appreciate you on here co-hosting. And of course, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Join us every Friday for the live taping of Disrupt TV, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. And thanks a lot. So happy Friday.